Those who study military history will tell us that the turning point of the American Civil War was the Battle of Gettysburg. 170,000 troops clashed there, Union and Confederates, and there were 50,000 casualties between them. The battle centered around attempts by the Confederate armies to drive the Union troops from uh, their position on Little Round Top. Little Round Top was about 200 feet higher than the Confederate armies were, and from that high ground, you can see, you can see a long, long way, and the statue there you see is of General Warren. You clearly see every move that uh, the opponents were making and counter them. The higher perspective made all the difference in that battle. You've seen it at parades or ball games. Little children get lost in the maze of big people legs and can't see anything at all. So every so often they'll say, hey, daddy, hold me up so I can see. Does the times. I can remember Drew doing that uh, when he was little. There we are. And uh, looking and seeing, hey, let me see things from up there. Because the higher perspective is a better view. You can see more stuff. You can see things you couldn't see before. Everybody has a certain view, a perspective on life. We call that a worldview. It's the lens through which we see everything, by which we interpret everything. Another word for a worldview, another way to think about worldview, is that this is the story that you tell to explain everything else in the world. And the worldview is based around four key questions. Who are we? How do we get here? What's gone wrong with the world? Who or what can fix it? And is there any hope whatsoever? Now, there are 8 billion people on the planet. Every one of them have that story going on in their head all the time. So you can imagine there's quite a bit of conflict and confusion when you see that. And Christians are not immune from that. We live in that world of, of competing stories and perspectives. We can be sometimes like the little child in the sea of adult legs, not really see things. The Christians have been given a gift, a particular view of the world through the Scriptures, You've since referred to before as the story, describing the one story of the Scripture in these four chapters. And you'll see that these chapters answer those same four questions. Who are we? Where we come from? That's creation. What's gone wrong with the world? That's the fall. Who or what will fix it? That's rescue by Christ. Is there any hope? That's the restoration that is promised. This is the world from God's perspective. And so we can come to him like children. We can hold our arms up and say, Abba, Father, hold me up. I need to see things the way you do. That's the only way we can begin to see things from his divine perspective. And right at the center of all that, the one person at the center of that story, as Pastor Jason was saying, the lens that clarifies how we look at the world and everything in it, well, that's Jesus Christ. But the question is this. How does seeing Christ clearly change the way I see the world? How does seeing Christ clearly change the way I see the world, my place in it, everything else in it? And that's really the core message of the book of Colossians, and we're going to continue through that. And so if you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 as we continue this morning. Remember the Colossian believers, small church, fairly new, had been confused by some false teachings, that there were dreams and secret teachings that were necessary to unlock the true realities of God. So that's why Paul writes the letter. 
given his greetings. He's prayed for them. There's a divine purpose that is for you. And the middle, beginning in, in chapter 1, verse 15, for about six or eight verses here, and really for the remainder of the book, Paul begins focusing on the main theme, and that is that Christ is supreme over all other things. All the stories, all the narratives, all the views of the world, that Jesus Christ reigns supreme over them. Now here in these verses, from verse 15 to about verse 21 or so, he's probably quoting a hymn that the early Christians would have sung uh, to Christ, about Christ. And what we have here is one of the richest teachings in all the scripture on the person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to take it really slow as we walk through that. So would you stand me and honor the reading of God's word? We want to hear just one verse. Sam's going to come and read God's word for us today. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Let's hear the Lord's word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn among all creation. Let's see what it's saying here. Invisible God, first truth is this to understand, in many ways, God remains a mystery to us. He's described here as unseen. This is not the only place. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. First Timothy says the king of the ages, the only God is invisible. You can't see him. So we cannot physically touch him or hear him or see him. We can't plot God on a graph, catch him with a hidden camera. So since we can't understand God the way we normally understand other things in our world, that means he is outside our understanding. He remains a mystery. And the technical term for this is that God is transcendent. He transcends. He's above, he's beyond everything in our human experience. As you go through the scriptures, it seems that God goes out of his way to make that abundantly clear to us. Remember the story of the children of Israel who were held in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. By God's great power, he draws them out and they make their way through the waters to the place God had designated for them to meet him on Mount Sinai. When they arrive, God is already there. The top of the mountain, it says, is, is, is there's smoke going up, there's fire coming from it, there's thunder and lightnings, there are earthquakes that are shaking the very earth, the sound of trumpets or shofars are going louder and louder and louder. I don't know about you, but that to me, it has freaked me out already. And they get there, and God calls Moses and said, I want you to get the people ready, prepare the people to meet with me. And here's what he says. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up to the edge of the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Let them keep behind the boundaries, lest the Lord break through against them. The holiness, the power is too much. Keep them back. Moses later asked to see God's glory. He said, I want to see the full, unfiltered force of your beauty and your goodness and your holiness and your power. And here's what God says. He says, you, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. I'll cover you with my hand till I have passed by, then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. 
God says, glory? Moses, you can't handle glory. <laughs> you just can't. You're not built for that as a human being to handle that. So he's saying, remember, remember, I'm a mystery, I'm transcendent, I'm beyond you. So we work our way through the scriptures. And the rest of it tells us that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He doesn't know the facts about things. He's not like a heavenly Google. He knows all there is to know about the earth and the universe. He knows all the, all the places in the earth that we never see or dream of. The deepest part of the Pacific where there are creatures still being uncovered that we didn't know had been there living for a long, long time. The far reaches of the universe where there are galaxies that we still discover. Oh, we didn't know that was out there, but God did because he holds every star and calls them by name. He knows them. He knows all there is to know about everything in human history, where it's come from, what's happening now, where it's going, how all the pieces fit together. He knows everything about human thought and achievement and learning and action, institutions and relationships and, and issues. He knows down to the, the individual level of all 8 billion people and all who've ever lived. He knows every individual motive and every individual inner dialogue. No wonder that Paul, at the end of Romans 11, says this, Oh, the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. He's omniscient. Not only that, he is omnipresent. He is in every place, in every moment, fully God, undivided in every place. He fully exists. There's no place where he is not in all of creation, and also he exists outside of time. So he's in all places in history at all times, fully as he is in our moment. It's amazing to think about. So the psalmist says, where can I go? from your presence, from your spirit. Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. Make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead. You are there. Our God is everywhere. No, he is the omniscient and omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Everything that exists was created by a word. Everything that exists is sustained by a word that he holds. And so Jeremiah says, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you in your hand or power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Our God, omniscient and omnipresent, omnipotent, and we've not yet really spent a lot of time touching the realities of God that we've already sung about this morning. That God is eternal. He has no beginning. He will have no end. He is holy. He is pure and perfect and distinctly other from us, beyond us. He is unchanging for all that he gives and all that he does. He is undiminished in the slightest. He is not, uh, not affected by time or by culture. He is righteous and just. He does, always does what is true and right in every moment. He is compassionate. He sees and cares and acts for those who are hurting and those who are left out, those who are broken in that way. We sang he is faithful. There's not one word of what he's promised that has ever failed to come to pass. And overall, he is a God of love. 
that he does what is good and best for us. He has this ferocious, radical love that never, ever changes or fades, even for those who are his enemies. Begin to add all that up, all that we see about the character of God. And Job, who may have seen him better than anybody, said this, all of these are but the outskirts the outer fringes of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. Do you feel small yet? He is the transcendent God. He is above us. He is higher and bigger than our imaginations. On our best day, we cannot grasp him as he fully and truly is. If considering this God doesn't overwhelm you, humble you, buckle your knees, Draw some tears, take your voice to a whisper, leave you speechless, or terrify you a little bit. It's probably not the true God you're thinking about. Because this, brothers and sisters, this is our God. Now, how can we possibly know a God like that? It's as if we're asking a ladybug to understand what it's like to be human. A ladybug can't understand what it means for a human to think or, or dream or get up in the morning and take a walk or, or fall in love or dance or climb a mountain or go on an adventure or make snow angels or create something. Ladybug has no categories for being human. And we have no categories for knowing and engaging God. He remains a mystery. He is the transcendent God. He's a mystery. But there is this glorious promise. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. It says, the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever. And yes, there are hidden things about God that we will never be able to grasp, that are always going to be beyond us. And God knows that. So God has taken the initiative to reveal himself to us to reveal himself in ways that we can understand him. How does he do that? He does that through creation. Just look at the creation. You'll see my, my power, my works, my character, my beauty. You'll see there's got to be somebody there. Look at the creation. He gave us his word that speaks. But what Colossians says is he is the image of the invisible God. So here's what we understand. Yes, God's a mystery. But in Jesus Christ, God reveals himself to us. He reveals himself to us. 
So you understand these things to be true from these very pregnant phrases here. It says he is the image of the invisible God. So here's the thing we understand about Jesus Christ. He is fully God, the precise image of God. The word there for image is the word akon, from which we get our word icon. And we understand how icons work. In our world, we equate icon with brand. So consider with me for a moment, the most powerful global brands from a recent study in Forbes magazine in 2018. Just a few of these we want you to see. And, and as these come up, this is the audience participation part of our message this morning. I want you to call out what product or service you're reminded of when you see uh, these, these icons or these logos. Here you go. Coke. Everybody's going to drink Coke, right? Facebook. Unwanted ads. <laughs> Toyota, cars, right? Apple, computers. Google, search engine, finding stuff. Amazon, shipping, shopping. Microsoft, gonna get more computers and stuff. Walt Disney, films, television, entertainment, all kinds of things. An icon points to and represents something larger than itself. So when it says Jesus is the, the icon, the icon of God, let's understand in this case, he's not just representative of an idea, but he carries the very substance of all God is. There was an early church council that came out with a statement and a creed called the Nicene Creed, and the entire discussion was around, is Christ of the same substance as God? Are they essentially the same? And a lot of what they drew from was this verse in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, Jesus Christ, God's Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And the picture of exact imprint is of a king who has a, has a signet ring, takes a signet ring, places it into hot wax on an official document so that when he removes the ring, right, that the seal would show precisely what was on the ring. And that thing that was stand with the exact imprint of the king would carry the authority of the king himself. So when it says that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of his nature, it's reminding us that Jesus is fully God. He's not just like God. He's not a representative of the home office of God. He is God himself. So back to John chapter 1, verse 18, where it said, no one's ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. He has made him known so we can see him for who he is. If you want to know what God is like, simply look at Jesus. This is why we urge you to spend a lot of time in the Gospels. You read the Gospels. In the Gospels, you can watch and hear and see the, the, the life of Jesus. Philip was one of the inner 12 and walked with Jesus for three years. And toward the end of that time, he sort of asked him the Moses question. Hey, Jesus, listen, I, I get all this, but... If you could just show us the Father, that'd be enough for us. And Jesus turns to him, and Jesus said, have I been with you so long, Philip? Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. 
Understand, every single thing that we describe as the overwhelming wonder and mystery of God is true of Jesus. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. This is what got him in trouble. He's the very personal name of God himself. I am that I am. I am. I exist. I don't have any props, nothing outside of me. I simply exist. And everything revolves around the reality of who I am. We see it in Jesus, don't we? We see God's power, God's power over nature. He says, peace, be still, to a stormy sea, and it stops. To disease, he says, take up your bed and walk. To demons, he says, come out of them and get into this herd of pigs over here. He has authority over sin, over death. When he rose again and death could not hold him. We see that. We see the power of God. We see the knowledge and the wisdom of God that, that, is, that is identical in scope. We see that the character of God is identical in the nature of Christ. Jesus Christ is fully God. He is the precise image of God. But not only that. He is fully man, the perfect ideal of humanity. This is an odd phrase here, this phrase, uh, firstborn of all creation. Let's answer, first of all, what's it not mean? So be careful we understand that. We just answered that. Jesus is not a created human being like us. This is the trouble with uh, the heresy of cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and others who will say, oh, Jesus is, not, is just a son of God. He is a God, not God himself, that he's a God in whom we poured the container and, and there's a little bit of God poured into him. No, that's not what it is saying. When it says he's the firstborn of all creation, he's firstborn in time, it means he's eternal. He's also firstborn in rank or authority. So Jesus is over his creation as, as the authority but in the moment of his incarnation, when he is born, enters into our world, he enters into that creation. So the word was with God and the word was God. And John 1:14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what does it mean that Jesus, who's fully God, became flesh? What that means is that any experience of human life that you have had as a human being, he had. He was born, spent nine months in his mother's womb and was born, just like you. He cried when he was a baby, wet his diaper and had to be burped. He was a toddler. He learned how to walk, maybe holding on to the fingers of his mom and dad. As a child, he played tag with his friends. He had to obey his parents when it was time to go to bed. As a teenager, he began to learn to trade because that's what boys in that culture did. But he also began to notice these wondrous creations called girls and probably had some, some acne to deal with because that's what happens to teenage boys. As an adult, he was a small businessman. He had deadlines to meet. He had family obligations. We think Joseph died pretty early and he would have been responsible to care for his family. He got tired at the end of the long day. He had sore muscles. He had good friends, both men and women. He dealt with politics and the world around him. He went to parties. He enjoyed a good meal. He cracked jokes. You would have liked Jesus. 
But beyond all of that, even more, he lived a human life the way God meant it to be lived when God first made human beings male and female. He lived his life to enjoy and love God. He ordered his life by God's ways, and he loved and served others. Now, he had lots of opportunities to do things his own way, just like we do, to do things his own way. But look what happened, look what Hebrews says. He was tempted in all ways, as we are, to do things our own way, yet without sin. He perfectly lived a human life the way God intended a human life to be lived when God created human beings in the beginning. He is the perfect ideal of humanity. Now, here's, here's the wonder. Jesus is fully God, the image of God, identically and precisely, and fully man, an ideal human being, at the same time, without diminishing either in the slightest degree. Fully God, fully man, at the same time, without diminishing either in the slightest degree. How is that possible? Help me understand that. Help me grasp that. Because it doesn't seem to meet the basic tenets of logic. If I have two things that are opposite, how do I put them together? This is black, this is white. I, they can't be black and white at the same time. It doesn't work that way. How can that possibly be? And I will tell you, after years of thinking about this and studying the scriptures and going to seminary and getting degrees, I have figured it out. Here's the truth. I don't have a clue. <laughs> I can't possibly explain that to you. I can't work it out in my own mind, in my own understanding. But here's what I also know. God's truth is not swayed by my understanding. It's God's truth. And there's a truth that God says is true, and it's beyond my understanding. The problem is not on his end. The deficiency is on my end, that he's just bigger than me. Here's the problem. If you tip your understanding of Jesus one way or the other, you get a distorted Jesus. If you tip toward fully God, you make him into some kind of a disconnected superhero. You tip him toward fully man, and you get a nice guy in a robe who likes God. And it doesn't work that way. Remember, God's word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his, what? Glory. Remember what Moses asked? Moses said, God said, you can't. But remember, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've seen his glory, fully God, in the face of Jesus. We've seen him. God has made the incomprehensible comprehensible. <laughs> He's an English. This Jesus, fully God, fully man, is the theme and the center of God's story. Now, here's the thing. This is not intended this morning to be a theology lesson. This is not an exercise for your head to get some cool Bible knowledge. This is not just affirming truths that are in our articles of faith, though they are. Here's the question. If this is who Jesus is as he reveals God, 
So what? What difference does this make in the way you and I see the world, in the way you and I live our lives? Here's what you got to know. There's nobody like Jesus Christ. There's nobody like Jesus. So be stunned and in awe of him. Yes, he is fully God. He is the one before whom angels from all eternity have cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he is the one who at this very moment, because you know he is alive, at this very moment is the center of heaven's praises. That's our Jesus. It's who he is. We must be so careful not to reduce him, to make him our homeboy, our buddy Jesus. We're so, we have such a tendency toward this in the evangelical world. This is who Jesus is. You can't put him in the lineup of coffee, naps, and Jesus. It's not who he is. You can't say, oh, this is, he's my rock and that's how I roll. That's cute. We're too cute by about half. We'll do a picture and show Jesus in a lineup of all the superheroes or cartoon movies. He's not. He is the king of glory. And he's worthy of our reverent awe because there's nobody like Jesus Christ. Apart from this one who is fully God and fully man, there is no salvation. None of us can be saved. He is the gospel. He's the only one who can reconcile you to God. He's the only one who can bridge the gap between your sin that separates you from God. The relationship with God, the single most important reality in the universe, he is desperately necessary for your soul. If you're here this morning and you like Jesus and you, you think about Jesus and he's a good example and you do that, but you've never repented of sin and trusted Christ, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, run to Christ because you need him. You desperately need him for every second of your life now and for your eternal destiny. There's nobody like Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of things and products and people in our world that begin to say, oh, listen, they're, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll satisfy you. We'll make you happy. We'll make you, we'll make you, uh, we'll make you ha have a good time in life. We'll put all things together that you really want. We'll satisfy your every longing. And none of those can do that. Because Jesus is immeasurably better than anything the world has to offer. There's nobody, nobody like Jesus Christ. All of us are drawn to people who help us live a better life. We need the perspective and the advice of parents and teachers and mentors and coaches, and we should. We want people who have gone before us, have done better, but all those have their limitations. But consider, the one who is fully God created life in the first place and knows how to live its purpose. He created you and knows the purpose for which he made your life. And not only that, the one who is fully man has lived life on earth with all the junk we deal with, all its messes and stresses and joys and pains and struggle and lived it perfectly. Listen, if you're going to follow somebody to make life work, you better follow the one who knows how to live life perfectly. And that's Jesus. Would you follow him? There's nobody like Jesus.
in these realities of his strength, his wonder, his joy, his wisdom, his courage, his power, his compassion, his understanding, his focus, captivate your mind, begin to stir your affections. You'll live a much, much larger story than you ever dreamed that you would live. Listen to me. He is absolutely worthy of giving everything you are to have all that he is for your life. There's nobody like Jesus Christ. He is the higher ground from which we see. He is your daddy's shoulders on which you get to look and see what life is all about. So come up, come up higher and see the world through Jesus' eyes. The higher perspective of Jesus, who he is, why he lives, will make all the difference for you now and for your eternity. Can we stand together, please? And would you just bow your heads in prayer? The next few moments, we want you just to consider the wonder and the mystery of Jesus. As our worship team leads us, we want you to pray and consider the realities of that mystery. Yes, it's good to know, but then consider how am I living out from that reality? So as we pray and as they Sing. We want to invite you to come and kneel here. And in your coming and kneeling, you're saying, Jesus, there's nobody like you. I need you to save me. I need you to live. Maybe you need to come and just confess, Jesus, I've kind of put you down a few rungs. I need to put you back where you belong. So, Lord, in these moments, as so we consider the wonder of all you are, would you come speak to our souls and help us respond in obedience to your prompting we will be shaped by the reality of who you are do your work in us now we pray in jesus name